take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read the first ten verses, just to have our context. So Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 1 through 10 will be our text this evening. Let us hear the word. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna. And Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenants. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is in symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, just as we saw in this morning as we looked at these passages, these, these verses really highlight some of the faults of the Old Covenant worship. And it is about looking at the Old Covenant of worship. In fact, it references the worshiper in verse 9. And so it is in that context of worship. The tabernacle was the place of worship. And then in verses 6 through 10, what you have is the directions, the prescriptions, the regulations for worship. Um, and these are descriptions of what took place. And it's all for the purpose of showing us what we have in Christ, what we have in the new covenant, is so much superior. And these are the better promises that are mentioned in chapter 8. But what I want to hone in on is in verse 1, with that in mind, it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. So that statement, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, indicates that there are regulations for worship then in the new covenant. No one is confused of whether worship in the Old Testament was regulated. It was very clear, and it was clear in the fact that if you didn't worship God according to his prescription, you died. Uh, what is less clear for many, because it's not practiced, it's not taught, it's not emphasized in a great majority of places, is the fact that there are regulations for worship today in the New Covenant. 
And what we have to recognize is that God is the one who is worshipped, so God, as the ultimate, God is the one that is holy, has a right to tell us how he ought to be worshipped. And if we don't worship God according to how he has described, we're actually conducting unlawful worship. In many ways, you could argue that you've entered into sin. And I think in many cases, in many places, it is just that, sin, which takes place when they gather on the Lord's Day. It's certainly not worship of the one true God. We have to understand that we must take this deadly serious. This is an an essential thing of, of doctrine and must be most foremost in our mind as a church. And why that is, is because this is how we worship God. This is how we bring glory to God. But we see that it's also for our own good. This is why sometimes we will refer to sitting under the preaching of the word, sitting under the ordinances, sitting under a pastor, is the means of God's grace in your life. And so oftentimes we call worship means of grace. And just turn over for a second to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. And I want you to notice the corporate words for corporality throughout this entire section. As I read verses 19 through 25, I just want you to notice the plurality. This is not speaking to the individual. This is speaking to a corporate body. Therefore, brothers, you could say, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, you will see that this is spoken to a group of people, and there's clearly a, a decision that these people meet together. They're aware that they're meeting together. And the Holy Spirit is saying to this group of people, you must be together and worship. It's speaking of them gathering as a church to worship. So when we see this phrase in chapter 9, verse 1, that now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, and assuming that it means we have regulations in the Hebrew the recipients of this letter were aware of these regulations of worship. It's clear when you get to chapter 10 that there's a set time for them which they were meeting. That God didn't prescribe the the set time for them. That was something that was worked out in the local congregation. But I want you to notice that idea of the, the word regulation. It's a requirement. 
There's requirements in worship. You see it in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. The same word uh, translated this way as a decree. In Romans chapter 132, it says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that is something that God has stated and, and put into place. You see in Luke, the same word in chapter 1, in verse 6, translated as, as statutes, when we read this, and they were both righteous, walking before God, walking blamelessly in all the God's in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So we see that word regulation. We can't think of it like how we sometimes think of a government regulation on a building where we might be able to get by with maybe not doing it exactly how it's supposed to be done. But actually, this is something that is also translated as a decree. This is a statute of God. It's a requirement of God. And so when we think of worship and new covenant worship, what we must be decidedly clear on is that God has, in fact, regulated what worship is to be like. The text of Scripture makes that clear. So what is that? Well, we have to look at various places in Scripture to, to get what this looks like, but just starting in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 13, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, I just want you to hang on that word, public reading of Scripture. In other words, the context of his instructions on teaching and the reading of Scripture and preaching, if you see uh, exhortation as preaching, is that this is done in a public realm. This is done in the church. And Paul commands him, when he says, devote yourself that is a present active imperative. It's a command, which means it's an ongoing command that Timothy is to continually be devoted to reading scriptures publicly when the saints have gathered. So in other words, there's to be someone that is reading scriptures and then there's a be, to be recipients of hearing that. And that's supposed to be ongoing until Christ returns. That's supposed to be what we do, and that there's supposed to be exhortation. There is to be teaching that takes place. Every now and then I will get, a, get curiosity, and there's a few churches, I just will go on their websites, rather large influential churches in this area, and I will go on their websites and watch out of curiosity a, um, a gathering and it's, it's incredible to me how often I will, I will watch it and there will never once be a public reading of Scripture. The sermon, if it can be called that rightly, might have some Scripture in it. But there will never be a dedicated time of where we will say, this is the Word of God, and just simply reading God's Word and letting God's Word be there. It's incredible to me that it's, it's so clear that, that part of ga the gathering of worship is the reading of Scripture that's separated from the preaching of Scripture. 
It's just simply us getting together and hearing God's word. It doesn't need comment. It's just hearing God's word. This also brings the question, okay, so Timothy was not a pastor. Timothy was not an apostle. He was a part of this rare person that, that will never exist again, that doesn't have a, a, a specific title in Scripture, but you can understand where I'm going with this. He was an apostolic delegate. He was commissioned to go to churches and oversee them, not as the elder of the churches. Same with Titus. So there's this rare role that's now a passing role because no one's going to be sent by an apostle because we know that there are no longer apostles. And so what this is, this description of what he's supposed to do is to be modeled and then proclaimed in the churches that he was over. And this is now kept for us by God's word of what we ourselves are to do is have that public reading, that public teaching. But we have to ask this question, who's to do the teaching? Well, one thing we've got to be crystal clear on is Christ promised to equip his church with teachers. This is of Christ in in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 11, it's, it's the picture of Christ from his throne equipping his bride with teachers. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So the first thing is, is who does that teaching, that public exhortation? Who is it that does that? Well, Christ himself appoints teachers for it. And when you look at the structure of the church, an elder, for instance, must be able to teach. An elder is the only one with that qualification on them. And you see then in chapter 5 of verse 17 of 1 Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so the structure that's ordained by Christ from his throne is that worship takes place, that there's reading of Scripture, that there's the teaching of Scripture, and this is coming under the direction of one that Christ has appointed and the church has recognized and called. Titus is told this is his number one goal when he goes to the island of Crete. Paul told him this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Meaning there were some things left undone. What were they? The most important thing, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And he goes on to say in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So the gathering of the saints is to be a time of instruction through God's word by God's appointed person for that. So what have we seen? Public reading of scripture is necessary for that regulation of worship. Preaching of the word 
The instruction from God's Word to God's people is necessary for that. So you have, the, you have a dual role here. There's someone that's been appointed and recognized by a church to do these things. The expectation is that he will do them, and then the expectation is that the people will listen and embrace that. That's the dual responsibility. That's not all that we're supposed to do. I, I do think that the Reformers were right that the, the word of God proclaimed, the man less hidden is to be the center of the worship. Because there is where we encounter Christ. Paul writes to the church of Colossae in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. Paul's telling the church that when they gather, they're to, to, to teach, they're supposed to be admonishing one another, and that they're to sing. They're to sing with one another. He tells the church in Ephesus something very similar where he says, addressing one another, and this is 5.19 of Ephesians, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing is part of it. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord. Prayer. Thankfulness to the Lord when we gather is to be part of it. So what have we seen? There's to be preaching, There is to be prayer, there is to be singing, there is to be the public reading of Scripture. Paul, when he instructs the church of Corinth on the Lord's Supper, he says this, but in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now, he's correcting what they do in in the service of the Lord's table is that when they do it, they're doing it improperly, and so he gives instructions on how they're to conduct the Lord's table properly. But the whole point we see is that it was part of what? Worship. When you come together to do these things. Jesus commands his church to go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The ordinances are to be part of the worship. You think about some of the things like giving. Well, what about giving? Well, Paul actually instructs the church of Corinth in the 16th chapter, which we'll look at that verse later on, when you come together on the first day of the week, make sure you collect for the saints. 
So clearly there, these are things that were part of worship that we see in Scripture. So I think we need to hang on this, is that when we look at the worship of the Old Covenant and we think, well, okay, we don't, we don't meet in the tent, we don't have all of these things of incense and all of these things that we do anymore because we're told very clearly those things have passed. The time of Reformation is here. The present age is here. So we're no longer doing those things. Does that mean we're not doing anything? No, it actually means we're doing something. We're gathering under God's appointed means of grace to worship Him. That's how we grow. And apart from that, we won't grow. Apart from that, our faith grows stagnant. Apart from that, we, we don't actually get to contribute to the whole corporate whole. Now, the other aspect of this, of this regulated worship, is that worship takes place in the Christian's life as a daily experience is that there shouldn't be a time where we're, we're absent of worship. When we pray, when we're reading scripture, maybe when we're singing uh, psalms, singing hymns, if we have family worship in our home, when we're doing family worship, these are times when we can gather. And there's no set time and place that's prescribed for that. That's what we're to be doing as part of our Christian life. And so largely what's being described here is what takes place in the corporate gathering of the saints. But that does me ask, beg a question. Does God actually say that there is a time when we are to set this apart as being holy? We celebrate on Sunday as the Lord's day. In the Old Covenant, their day of setting apart as holy was the Sabbath, which was Saturday. The New Covenant promises that God will write on their hearts His law. Now, God has only written one law, in that description where God has written it with his hand, and that was the Ten Commandments. So in the New Covenant, the promise of the law being written on the heart, if we're just comparing Scripture with Scripture, that what that's speaking of is God's Ten Commandments being written upon our hearts in the New Covenant. So what's revealed to us then in the New Covenant, is that idea of setting aside a day of worship. But wait, we worship on Sunday, but the Ten Commandments says to worship the Sabbath, which was understood as Saturday. What do we do? I love what the Confession says, the 1689 Confession. It says this, As it is of the law of nature... 
that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. Now just pause for a second. The confession is saying this. It's revealed in nature that we're to set apart a day of worship. Is that true? Absolutely. Go across any culture and you will find any people group, whether they are Christian or they are not. They are some sort of pagan tribal group. What do they have? They'll have a time of worship. They'll have a religion that they follow with rules and ordinances. And they'll have a holy man that represents them before their God or gods. Why is that? Because man cannot escape the fact that God has naturally revealed his law in our hearts. The promise of the new covenant is that with a new heart, we will actually obey God's law. But God has embedded it into man that we worship. Apart from the light of God's word, though, because human nature is depraved, we will worship the creation rather than the creator. We need God's special revelation. Goes on to say, So by his word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week which is called the Lord's Day. It's interesting how it states this, because it states it in language we do not use very often. It says it's a moral command, that it was also naturally revealed, but it says it's a positive command. Now, what is positive commands? What are po- what's positive law? Positive law is a law that may not necessarily be a moral eternal law. A positive law, as we've seen many times before, was you're not to eat any split-hoofed animal. You're not to eat pork. That's a positive law for a, perfect, for a period of time. It was moral in the fact that God gave it for His purposes, but it was not a law, as we have seen, was forever because even Hebrews tells us laws with food and drink and various washings were there until the time of Reformation. So what the confession is saying is two things. You have a positive law in the, in, in the gathering of the saints, of keeping the Sabbath. It's positive, but then it's also moral, which means it's perpetually to be kept. So what's going on there? Francis Turretin the great reformer said this is how we have to understand the, the command to keep the Sabbath is this, is that it is a moral command that we set aside a day that God has appointed for worship, but yet the day itself is ceremonial. So if the day itself is ceremonial, what do we know of the ceremonial law? Do we still practice the ceremonial law? No, it's gone away with. It's gone away with. 
So we know that there is a natural day of rest. There is a day that has been revealed by God. And, and actually, the Sabbath itself was rooted in creation. You see in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, we see the day of creation is referenced again. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That is tied to creation. It is tied to creation. But when we come to the New Covenant, there's something we have to understand about days. We see Paul addresses this to the church in Colossae to go there again. He says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. What did he just say? The ceremonial law has passed. But yet, isn't it interesting, the guy that writes that is the same guy that says, when you come together, don't neglect coming together. When you come together on the first day of the week, when it's assumed that you come together. It's shown that the moral aspect of gathering is in place. The ceremonial part of it being a Saturday has passed. And so why do we gather on Sunday? Very simply, it's because of this in Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week at the early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices that they had prepared. Hang on that phrase. But on the first day of the week. Why do we gather on Sunday? Here's why we gather on Sunday, is because Christ promised that the Holy Spirit would come to the disciples and teach them all things, and that they would write it down in a book to instruct us. And we do this because of the apostolic tradition of doing it. When did the apostles gather to worship? They gathered on the first day of the week. That is when Christian worship came to represent and recognize and celebrate and gather in the name of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Now that phrase, but on the first day of the week, it's repeated again in Acts chapter 20, in this very familiar passage, in verse 7 of Acts 20, on the first day of the week. Now just real quick, who wrote the book of Luke? Luke. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Who wrote the book of Acts and Luke? The Holy Spirit. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Huh. What were they gathering to do? Celebrate the Lord's Supper that Paul instructs the church in Corinth when you come together for the Lord's table. When did they do that? 
on the first day of the week. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. What was Paul doing? Exhortation, preaching, teaching the Word of God. When? On the first day of the week. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul says this, in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. Wait a second. Every week? On the first day? Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So what is, what is Paul saying is this, is that when you have come together, this would be the most opportune time to collect funds for the relief of the saints. And when, did, when was the most opportune time? Well, it would be during the time when they gathered to worship and do the Lord's Supper, which was what he already identified in chapter 11 of when you come together. When was that? First day of the week. You go to Revelation, which some argue is the final book written in terms of year. I don't know whether it was or not. But we, we see still the practice in, John, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now that phrase, Lord's Day, is so important because when you see the Lord's Day, it's connected to that first day of the week in Scripture. What's John doing on the Lord's Day? He's worshiping the Lord on that first day of the week. You know, it's incredible. Actually, you see hints of this pointing forward even in the Old Testament. So I I state this to show that it's not like the idea of the Lord's Day and the Sabbath was just thought up out of the blue by the apostles, but actually was shown forth in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13, I want you to notice the language and the connection of the language from the the, uh, New Testament. We've already heard these words. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, whose holy day? The Lord's. And what is it connected to? The Sabbath. And the holy day of the Lord. Honorable. If you honor it, not your going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. So what's the connection? The Lord's Day is actually, even in the Old Testament, directly connected to the idea of the Sabbath. So who is Lord of the Sabbath? For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew 12, 8. Every now and then, I will get someone coming to me and I, I'm, not, I'm not meaning to be mean or mock anyone, but they're usually wide-eyed on it. 
And they'll say, yeah, but didn't the Catholic Church change it? And didn't Constantine make it a law and that's why we did it? Well, it's true that Constantine did actually require worship on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. That's true. But, but even if he hadn't done that, the church was already practicing it. So Constantine was in the 300s. Okay, so Ignatius was born in 108, writes about gathering on Sunday. John Martyr, 100 AD, talks about it. Dionysus of Corinth writes about it. He was 171. Irenaeus, 130, writes of gathering on Sunday. The Didache, which is the probably from, I believe, before the, even the turn of the first century, instructs on gathering on the Lord's Day. So the idea that Constantine did something different from what the apostles and the inheritors of the apostolic tradition in those men that I just read, that, they did, that Constantine did something different is just plain wrong. All he did was institute by law what was already being practiced by Christians for 200 plus years. Let me read you Justin Martyr, what he says. Quote, and on the day called Sunday, pretty clear, <laughs> all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president, and I'm assuming that's referring to the elder, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things, to pray and do the ordinances, he goes on to say. And why is this that, that Justin Martyr interprets this, who was 200 years before Constantine made it a law? He says this, Sunday is the day on which, I find this fascinating, Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. So if you think about what God does on the first day, He brings in what? He brings in creation itself. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. And what does Christ bring in? If anyone is in Christ, he is a? A new creation. We celebrate this because Christ has brought in a new creation by his resurrection. And so as we think about when we worship, has God revealed to the Christian church when we worship? Yes. Yes, he has on the Lord's day. So how should we think about these things that we find in Old Covenant worship? The days that they would gather, the temple, the feast, all the regulations and all of those things. I think that we should recognize them and reflect upon how they point to Christ. But are they a law for us today? No. Actually, to make them a law would be unlawful. Because they've ceased. They've ceased. 
But let me ask you, how often do we consider the Lord's means of grace and how he has said, this is how you're to worship me. This is how I want you to worship me. How often do we consider it as being what honors God, brings him glory? And because we're selfish people, Jesus points this out, you're to love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? Where Jesus is pointing out that we're selfish people. What about this? Is that Have we ever reflected on that the way the Lord prescribes how he's to be worshipped is actually for our good? And it's the good for, of others? And that it, it's actually essential for us. So, are there regulations for New Testament worship? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very clear. And is there, is there a, a description uh, that we see, that we can tie all the way through, that tells us actually that we are to gather on the Lord's Day? Yeah, absolutely. This is a clear throughout all of Scripture that it shouldn't be a question for us that we are to take this seriously. I think that we should reflect upon it. I think that this should be what guides us as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made a way to worship you through your Son and his blood that it was shed on behalf of the church. We thank you that we have a forgiveness of sins and that we now may approach you boldly with confidence to your throne of grace, and it is a throne of grace to receive help, to receive mercy. Father, I pray that we would reflect deeply on how you have designed your church, how you have prescribed worship for your church. We pray that, Father, we would not take for granted your means of grace that you have given for our good and benefit and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.